Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. In this, our second podcast season, we'll be releasing groups of episodes thematically to allow for a deeper exploration of topics that we believe are both timely and timeless. Our first series of conversations will consider life after a global pandemic. With so many people across the world having experienced real loss, heartache, and isolation, how can we begin to take steps forward as a people called to hope, joy, and love? These are the kinds of questions we'll grapple with together, and we're so thankful that you're here. All of our episodes have been previously recorded and edited for length and clarity, but to listen to any of our conversations in full, just visit our website at ttf.org. Now, whether you're pouring yourself a cup of coffee and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. With that, here's today's conversation. We started this quarantine series as a way, at the onset of the quarantine, as a way of engaging big ideas together, even while we were socially distanced. And for many of us, long buried questions about our work, our sense of meaning and purpose are pushing into our consciousness and taking on a new life and urgency. There's really nothing quite like being isolated to make us wonder, what is our vocation? Why am I here? And how do I find and fulfill the purpose of my life? So it is with real pleasure and excitement that I get to introduce our guests today, Oz Guinness and Pete Peterson, to discuss calling in community in a post-pandemic world. Oz Guinness is an author, a social critic, and I am very proud to say, the founder and the first senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. So on that count alone, I owe him a great debt of gratitude. He has written or edited more than 30 books, including one that may be my favorite, that is particularly germane to our conversation today, entitled The Call, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. We will link to it, the chat features, and really encourage you to avail yourself of that book. Joining Oz is my good friend, Pete Peterson, the Dean of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy and a frequent writer and speaker on issues of civic participation, government responsiveness and transparency, as well as social capital. He writes widely for a whole variety of publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, and others. Oz and Pete, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you to have you here. So we'll start out by just jumping in and defining our terms. Calling has been used to mean anything from professional achievement to self-actualization and following your bliss, or conversely limited to full-time Christian ministry. So what does calling mean? And Oz, since you literally wrote the book on calling, let's start with you. Well, the way I define it is that when God says to us through Jesus, follow me, 
everything we are, everything we have, and everything we do is now given a direction and a dynamic because it's all done in response. It's done as unto him. And for me, that's calling. And we've got to distinguish it from, on the one hand, getting it too selfish, all about me. No, it's about him. And on the other hand, making it too spiritual. It's the spiritual religious world only rather than the whole of life. Mm-hmm. Great. Pete, anything you want to add to that definition? Yeah, I'd say that um, first I'd say it's such an honor to be with Oz. Um, his book and this conversation radically changed my own life. And so it's, it's really a, a, something that's come full circle just to be here with the both of you. Uh, I, I guess I'd only add that one of the parts of the call that I learned so much from uh, two decades ago when I was going through my own early onset midlife crisis uh, was the fact that there is a primary calling and a secondary calling. And so what Oz discusses in the book is that there is a primary calling placed by God on all individuals to come into relationship with him. The secondary calling is the one that it tends to be seen uh, through the lens of vocation, profession, civic engagement, or participation. Uh, one that is more specific to us as individuals uh, that is uncovered through experiences and through community. And so that understanding of a, of a primary calling and a secondary calling, I think, has been a really helpful way for me to understand my own calling, but also to communicate that uh, to and with others. Yeah, along those lines, Oz, in your book, you asserted that calling is more than purely cultural, but it is also more than purely personal. And you wrote, discover the meaning of calling, and you discover the heart of the gospel itself. In what ways is calling more than purely cultural or purely personal? Well, let's think, first of all, how it's central to our faith. Calling the first responder was Abraham. Mm-hmm. And then you see the call of Moses and the Exodus. Then you see the call of the servant in Isaiah. And then, of course, our Lord himself, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. And I think we've got to go back and really rediscover all that it means through the scripture, but then see that no other truth rivals it for the way it's put a stamp on history. And many of us are on the call will be the heirs of the Reformation. And you can see that while before the Reformation, people tended to make it religious and spiritual. So vocation was a call to the priesthood. And Martin Luther said, no, it is everyone, everywhere, in everything. And if you think of the impact of the Reformation and calling, people have said it's behind capitalism and so on. And much of our modern world is the fruit of it. And I would argue we've got to go back to the scripture to really understand it, see it in our own lives, incredibly important, but we need to discuss it in the post-pandemic world, because I think we're at a very sober time of the faith and the church in the West, and calling is going to be one of the critical contributions to the challenge we face in the post-pandemic world. We must bring that right up to the, the moment. Absolutely. Just to follow up on that, you discuss in your book the ways that calling is deeply generative, that calling presupposes a caller, and calling also implies naming, bringing forth 
ushering into a, a, both a being and a becoming. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that plays out practically. We've seen many ways in which a sense of calling, there have been unique Christian distortions in terms of its being instrumentalized. Uh, whether Christian groups who talk about the need is the call uh, as a way to essentially motivate those to do, others to do what they think needs to be done, uh, or elevating full-time Christian service as the one true form of calling, or even in the case of some patriarchy enthusiasts who have claimed um, in one book on reforming marriage uh, that men are called to a work and women are called to a man. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the generative nature of calling and how it pushes back against its more instrumentalized forms. Well, I love the fact that calling is not just be who you are. God has created us and we are who we are, we get on with it. It's be who you are but become whom you can become. Because while we have our aspirations and ambitions and our friends know this gift or that hope we have, no one knows us like the Lord. And he sees what he's calling us to be. And as we rise to follow that call, it's all a matter of growth. So it's not a once for all thing. Yes, we heard him and now we're following him but we grow as we follow him every day. And only he knows the deepest gifts, the deepest hopes, the deepest dreams, and the things that we're capable of. And as we follow him, it's right up till the very end. But as you say, we've got to distinguish all the lookalikes which are wrong. You mentioned need is not the call or the super spiritual is not the call. Or today, I was disappointed in my book for many people became a way of looking for, quote, your sweet spot. In other words, in a world of narcissism, it's all about me, L'Oreal ads and all that sort of stuff. Even calling has turned around. It's about him, mm. not mm. us. Mm. So we've got to keep distinguishing it from all the lookalikes that are actually distortions and get back to the scripture. But partly because, again, I say, when we discover the real thing, it makes us salt and light in today's world. And I, I would just mention, Pete, you probably are very interested in this too. The scandal of the American church is that compared with most of the countries in the West, we are a huge majority. Mm. And yet tiny groups in the country, say friends like the Jews, tiny, but they punch so well above their weight, they put us to shame. Mm -hmm. And groups we have disagreements with, like, say, LGBT activists, they punch well above their weight. And here we are a huge majority, and we're culturally non-influential. And the main mm -hmm. reason is we're not living the callings out as we have in the Bible and as they did in the Reformation. The Reformation created the modern world, and we're the heirs of this. And I think we need to recover our leadership in culture. Mm -hmm. Pete, let me ask you about your own journey of calling and vocation. Uh, because if calling is living into and out of the gifts that God has given us in the place where he has called us in response to his um, summons, part of that is a journey of discovery. And part right. of how we discover what gifts we have, what we have to offer, uh, is through others. And there are going to be different times along one's journey that that's going to change or be, um, or our picture be broadened and the like. You have made some fairly dramatic 
vocational shifts in your own life. What contributed to those pivot points and how did a community of believers play into your decisions? Well, in my yeah, so I think it's fair to say that I'm not doing a single thing I thought I'd be doing professionally 10 years ago. And I think in some ways that's can be seen at least as, as one possible indicator of, of calling. Uh, almost two decades ago, I was found myself stumbling around Central Park in midtown Manhattan, um, wondering about where my future lie professionally. Um, I looked uptown on a perfectly clear and beautiful early fall, late summer day, and I looked downtown and I saw the brownish black smoke coming up from what was the World Trade Center. I was working in Manhattan for a web development and marketing agency. And as I stared downtown in, I can just only describe it, I, I came to a place in my own life. I was 36 years old, 15 years into a career in marketing, sales, advertising. And I just, I realized that everything underneath my feet was shifting and came to a point where I realized in that moment that I didn't know what I was going to be doing for the next three decades, God willing, of a career. But I knew somehow in my heart that I couldn't just keep doing what I had been doing. And two weeks later, I was uh, given a white paper or white plastic garbage bag at the office and told to fill up uh, all my belongings and uh, was let go from that agency in the midst of, a, a, obviously, the beginning of a recession and had a real opportunity to explore what I was going to be doing with the rest of my career. Uh, I remember walking from 38th Street and 8th Avenue toward Penn Station for the commute home with uh, that plastic bag with all my office belongings and just thinking, uh, what am I going to do? And it was at that point, a dear friend of mine, Mike Larrup, who I know Oz knows, um, had uh, knew I was wrestling with this and presented me with this book, The Call. I had certainly had known Oz's work. I'd seen him speak a hundred times at Socrates in the City events in Manhattan. But uh, it was reading that book and being in relationship with other believers, um, my wife and other friends, that led me on this process of just being, for the first time in my life, very intentional about the career decisions I was, I was going to be making. And it was uh, those months that sent me to think about going back to graduate school, uh, coming out to a school at the time that I didn't even know existed in Pepperdine. And, uh, and here I am almost two decades later um, in a career that I never thought I'd be in, um, all because Oz Guinness ruined all my plans. <laughs> and the Lord did. <laughs> Shuri, when I came to faith, I'm talking to John Stott later, we agreed that in those days, I came to faith in 1960. And it was sort of understood in evangelicalism. If you were, quote, all out for Jesus, you had three choices. The ministry, evangelism, or the mission field. My parents are missionaries, so I knew enough about that to know it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. I actually.
he had a comic attempt. It was the years of Billy Graham in England to be an evangelist. That's another story. Um, and so I thought, well, I better become a minister. And after nine months in a church, I wasn't ordained mercifully. I absolutely hated it. Didn't know why. I liked the people. And then one day I talked to a man who put gas in my lovely old 40-year-old car, 1927 Austin. And I realized he was the first non-Christian I talked to in a week or two weeks. And I was in a kind of moon-to-tomb Christian subculture. And I was able to know why I didn't like it, because I like engaging with the world. Mm -hmm. And then someone gave me a Xerox copy of William Perkins, A Treatise on Calling. And that's what turned my life around. And I was one of the first in my generation to recover the idea. But as you said, it takes a while of trial and error. Mm -hmm. So if you force me for two words to say what is close to my calling, I'd never quite say it like that. I, I would say it's partly analysis, making sense of the world to the church, and partly apologetics, trying to make sense of the gospel to the world. But that took me a while to discover about 10 years, in fact, thinking of this and not that. But when I discovered that, I've never looked back. And everything I've done, I've worked for the BBC, I've worked at the Brookings Institution, had the privilege at the Trinity Forum. They're all very different, but they were all part of my central calling. So millions of Americans are about to go through the abrupt job and career changes you both have just alluded to. Millions of people have lost their jobs, will continue to do so. Entire industries will be reshaped, in many ways reduced. What counsel would you give to those who find themselves struggling? Uh, they thought they were living into their vocation, uh, their sense of vocation, and suddenly that has, has changed quite suddenly. How do you pursue your calling when suddenly your career is gone? Pete, why don't we start with you? Well, again, I'm just going to speak from my own experience. I went to George Washington University undergrad, came out, got involved in politics, and then for various reasons we, we might discuss later, I just really soured on that whole idea. The first decisions I made from a career perspective to get into marketing, advertising, sales, I have to say, I just really fell into. I wasn't making intentional decisions. Um, there were people around me who said, yeah, you know, you're an extrovert, you'll be good in sales. I had some family connections. And a career begins without really ever sitting down to think about, am I, why am I doing what I'm doing? And it, for me, it took 9-11 to fundamentally reorient that question and to place it right in front of me to think about not just my next steps, but also about my career. And I know what Oz discusses, I think, so well is vocation isn't just about your job. Uh, calling isn't just about your job. It's in the other areas that you can be engaged in. But I think it is important to take this moment, if you haven't done it, to read Oz's book, but to really ask seriously, and again, I can only speak from my own experience. I did not do this for 15 years until two buildings fell in lower Manhattan and rocked my world. But what I'm sensing is that this is happening now. 
um, that for reasons both economic, as you point to, but also just thinking through a world that's changing, that asking those fundamental questions about why are we doing what we're doing is a good thing and actually something that we can take advantage of um, in this moment. Cherie, part of the radical impact of the Reformation, it said work to a part of your calling. The trouble came when vocation was a synonym for occupation, and mm. then it's an interchangeable word. That's wrong. Mm. And if you lose your job, your quote, occupation, vocation, you have no meaning. That's terrible. Mm. If we go back to the scripture, you see even the slaves were called to follow the Lord in their slavery. And if you think of most Christians in history, and many, many, many Christians around the world today don't have jobs that are the slightest bit fulfilling. But whatever we do, slavery, Paul says, we have to do it as unto the Lord. Mm -hmm. So yes, the loss of work is an incredible challenge. But it often puts the finger on the fact that our work has become our identity, and that's dangerous. No, our identity is in the Lord and in following his calling, whether we're well-paid or out of work. So we're out of work. We have to think of other things. Often people have discovered the pandemic has helped us rediscover the place and power, for example, of prayer. So we've got to think of all sorts of other things. But that equation of calling and job is a deadly one, an idolatry, that can lead to a lot of problems. So, Oz, you have a wonderful chapter in your book dedicated to the audience of one. And you wrote, a life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others, uh, the audience of one. But it is a common and perhaps all too human tendency to conflate our own aspirations and desires with the call of God. And in this particular case, I'm thinking about a good friend of mine who was the chief of staff to a member of uh, the leadership of the House of Representatives. And in one or two weeks time, uh, this particular uh, House leader had over half a dozen different House members come to him and share that they felt that God was calling them to run for president. Now, it seems unlikely that God was actually calling you know, many uh, members of the House to all run concurrently for president. But it does sort of underscore our own human tendency to ascribe to God what we desperately want. How do we learn to distinguish and discern God's call on our life from our own most deeply held hopes? I think that's actually the central challenge of calling because this gift of expressing who we are before the Lord, be who you are, become who you are, becomes selfish because we are jolly old sinners all the way. And, you know, I have the story in the book, Winston Churchill couldn't stand Sir Stafford Cripps, who was a Presbyterian in his cabinet with a very strong sense of calling. You know, one day when Cripps left the cabinet room, Churchill turned to the others and shook his head and said, there but for the grace of God goes God. And Cripps just identified himself with God's call in a way that was thoroughly egotistic. And that's a terrible danger. Mm. So on the one hand, we constantly need to correct ourselves by the biblical 
understanding of calling. But then on the other hand, we need to have accountability from our friends, people who step in and say, hey, Oz, or whatever, hey, Pete, you know, a little too much of you in that, and, and, and so on. And we all need accountability. And everyone talks that today, but it's actually in the modern world much harder than ever because of mobility, anonymity. We don't really see each other deeply and closely enough to hold each other accountable, but we need it. Those of us who are married, that's part of the glory of being married, of having someone who's right next to us who can hold us accountable and knows us even when we try and deceive ourselves. So that is the biggest danger, Sheree, you're right. Pete, I'd be curious about your experience as well as someone who has run for office, who has um, learned or had to discern the difference between personal predilection and, um, and God's calling. Yeah, so I, I did run for statewide office here in California back in 2014, as I, as I sometimes quit. I, I ran as a Republican, which is why I'm now dean of a policy school. But it was that experience, I have to say, that I actually did feel a call to run for this specific office because of the work that I had been doing here at Pepperdine around civic engagement. And ultimately, it was not successful. I, I lost. I made it through the primary and, and lost on election night. But I have to say, as I sometimes speak with our students here, you can feel called to run and not necessarily called to win. It's fair to say that I wouldn't be in this chair right now as, as dean of this policy school had I not run for office. And there's so much that I learned from that experience, as difficult as it was to run, as difficult as it was to lose, but learned about myself, learned about politics more broadly, learned about what it is to step into the arena, so to speak, that now as I engage students and others, that was the only way that I would have learned those things. And so to broaden that lens out a bit, I think one of the aspects of calling that sometimes can get confused is that if you feel called into something that is not ultimately successful in worldly terms, that that is somehow necessarily indicative that that's not your calling. And I don't, I just don't believe that. I think there are things that can be learned in failure that, that you may have nonetheless been called into. We certainly have many examples in scripture of those who took certain paths and then in worldly terms were not successful, but generations ahead, that's where the impacts were seen and felt. And so I, I, I do believe that there is a calling to office and certainly to public service, but we, we also need to consider that it's not always by the world's terms that we judge the success of a calling. We were talking a little bit earlier about the generative nature of calling and how it calls forth that which is in the process of being made. And of course, as an educator, Pete, one of the things that you probably do a lot of is that very kind of generativity, a generative relationship with your students, mm. is to identify, to discern, and try to call forth uh, some of what you see in them. Oz is a, a thought leader and a leader of different organizations. You have inevitably done the same thing. And would love to hear from both of you about what counsel you have for other leaders and educators in playing that generative role in discerning and calling forth 
uh, what you see the best of and others under your care? Well, surely in my own life, as I look back, say, to school, there were two masters at school who recognized gifts in me that I didn't think of. My mother was a surgeon. My father was a teacher. I loved ideas and writing, but I never thought I'd ever write. But it was my English teacher who drew that out of me. In other words, part of being a little older in the faith is encouraging people by recognizing and drawing out of them the gifts you see emerging in them. And that's, you know, we do that, say, in coaching in the sports field. You bring out the best of an athlete or whatever. And we should be doing that generation to generation. The trouble is today, with all the American talk of generationalism, it's a generational thing you wouldn't understand. We've lost this link. You know, generations are simply different pulse beats in the story of humanity. And so we should be looking at all those, in my case, younger than me, and bringing out the best in them. Because sometimes we see things in others that they may not recognize in themselves. And when they're affirmed and encouraged, that's incredibly helpful. I just add to that, that uh, I, I think about the two R's when it comes to advising others on calling. One is that it's inherently relational. So if you're not in a relationship with the person that you are counseling, if you don't actually know their gifts, talents, or abilities, um, then it's going to frankly be very difficult for you to provide helpful counsel to that person. So you need to be in relationship with others. Uh, the second R is redemptive, and it follows the first, uh, because it's not just about your gifts and talents that I've found that can help shape your understanding of calling personally. It's also the experiences that you've been through. And to know that other person and to know the things that they've been through, I've found that calling is an amazingly redemptive force in somebody's life, that it can take what have been construed for years to be tragedies personally and flip them around to say, you went through this, but now you can help others because of that experience you had. Well, we have a bunch of audience questions all lined up. Our first question comes from Mike Brennan, who mm -hmm. asked, Oz, you wrote that we should, quote, break down every false barrier between the sacred and the secular, weaving all of life into a seamless web of faith and love in action. What are those false barriers that we build between the sacred and the secular, particularly in business, and how do you recommend that they be broken down? Mm. Well, I know my dear friend Mike is in the world of banking, and I bank with his wonderful bank, too. Um, obviously, there are some fields, in other words, we're all called to be salt and light. Mm. And that, as I said, was the Reformation idea of everyone, everywhere, in everything. Now, in some spheres, it's much easier to think through what it means to be a Christian in a particular line of work. When you're looking at spreadsheets, Mike, or whatever, it might be more difficult than say, I was working for the BBC as a, as a journalist for a while. It was far more easy than doing a spreadsheet. But in everything we do, of course, it begins with our own living and our character, and then our speaking and our treating other people, as Pete said, and then going down to the smallest things we do. Nothing is too small. There are no little people trying to think through every relationship and application of our lives in every area. 
And as I said, this is the great challenge of the post-pandemic era. Mm. Shame on us if we continue as weak as we've been. I, I read a line yesterday, evangelicalism died in November 2016. I wrote back, that is rubbish. Mm-hmm. You know, the Christians I know are quietly going on as before. We are not politicized. But we're moving into a world where, say, one of the big issues is going to be freedom. We are the guardians and custodians of freedom. You see the confusion, say, in some of the Catholic circles, Patrick Deneen and others saying that liberalism has failed. Well, his ideas of liberalism are not the idea that comes from the scripture, the Reformation, and the early Americans. And we as evangelicals are the guardians and heirs of that. This should be of all times our day. Nothing to do with November 2016 or November 2020, but to do with the deepest things that matter in the gospel. It's hardly anything deeper than freedom and the deepest things that matter to America. I'm a great believer in Augustine's idea that to understand a nation, you look at what it loves supremely. So you can't understand America, I'm a European, without understanding freedom and the status of freedom. And it's in deep, deep trouble today. And we of all people have the secrets to it. That's just one example. I I, I think I've appreciated in some new ways over these last months as I see this groundswell of of questioning about what the future looks like, mostly on the part of Mm 20-somethings, that this understanding of calling is actually inherently evangelical. Uh, in the sense that it it does literally call us right into into to, into a relationship with with him with God through Jesus, but it's it does it in a way that also understands that there is an individual relationship to be had as well and an individual identity. I love the Kierkegaard quote. He said, "And now with God's help, I shall become myself." And that understanding of God's unique relationship with us individually and corporately and understanding how that plays out in the decisions that we make professionally is an amazing message. It's an amazing message to those who don't believe, but really for the first time have had the ground under their feet completely shaken. And Pete, this one is for you. Kevin Wang asks, what advice do you have for young Christians in their 20s during this unique time? Well, my experience with 20-somethings is that, and I'm going to paint with the broadest brush possible, okay, is that many of them, at least those who have gone on to college, have in many ways been slotted for a particular direction since they were in the crib. And that can be a setup for the earliest onset midlife crisis possible. And so again, what's, what's triggered my thinking around this after 20 years has been seeing a world of which the uh, people in their 20s and 30s, you remember what happened after 9-11. People entered the military, people went into public service, people went into uh, ministry, people took on 
new civic responsibilities all because of that experience. And so I would only say to the 20-somethings out there, take this moment to be intentional about the next decisions that you're going to make. And if you had thought or maybe based some of your perceptions of where you were going professionally or in a civic way, based on particular perceptions of success, particular perceptions of what others have said, oh, you, you'd be great at that. Read Oz's book and really be intentional about these next steps. That's not to say that if you had always thought, I'm going to medical school, I want to be a doctor, this is my path for me. Maybe this time only strengthens that resolve to pursue that. And that's great. I've just seen too many in their early 20s and, and some currently in undergraduate school that have actually never really taken a step outside of themselves to ask themselves, why am I doing this? And that's what calling does to you. It wrecks that. And that's nothing but a good thing. As long as you continue to step through in community with others in making intentional decisions about your life and, and, and God's calling about upon your life. So our next question from Russell Shubin seems to follow naturally on the one that just preceded it. And he asks, what are your thoughts on reassessment of calling at later life stages, 40s, 50s, and beyond? So Oz, let's start with you on that one. You're always thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, our weekly confession in church is a form of self-examination. Mm -hmm. There are times like New Year's Eve, I... I was struck by the fact that the pandemic coincided with Lent and the Jewish Passover, both times of self-examination reflection. So for Christians, take Proverbs, the notion of courageability, iron sharpens iron, the correction of friends, mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. We should be asking ourselves how we're doing before the Lord all the time. Mm -hmm. And when people criticize, sometimes it's, you know, people hammer me in a lecture. I've got to go back and think, well, I thought they were dead wrong, but maybe they had a point and I need to learn something. In other words, always, and the big things that you're saying now, pandemics, retirement, things like this, should make us think through where we are and have a mid-course correction in life mm -hmm. so that we are always as close to my utmost for his highest is my namesake, Oswald Chambers. I was named after him to my peril. And that's particularly those of us who are over 50. Because in a culture that's just obsessed with youth, you know, those over 50 tend to be treated as obsolescent, particularly with technology, which we often are. But you can see in the Bible that there's a wisdom with age and there are things that mature and deepen with age and 50, 60, 70, 80, dear Jim Houston, the founder of the C.S. Lewis Society, now in his 90s. You know, we, we grow till the day we see the Lord face to face. That's the wonderful thing about calling. We grow yeah. till that point, and then we meet the one who called us. Until then, we only hear his voice in the scriptures or through the Spirit. One day, we'll see the caller. I would just add to that, 
the importance of maintaining relationships and the disciplines that actually surround calling. It's not to say that this moment is in necessarily changing what you're, what you're doing, but it can change how you view what you're doing. At the same time, I went to graduate school at 39 years old, definitely a complete career change in the last 20 years. Later in the session, I'm going to quote from another book I found very helpful by Jeffrey Epstein called Range. And one of the things he writes about in that book in analyzing those who have gone through rather circuitous career paths is what he calls the cult of the head start. And that many in their 40s and 50s and 60s who wonder whether they should pursue a different direction fall prey to the cult of the head start, which is to say, well, if I didn't start this at 20 years old, what, what am I doing thinking about taking this on now? And what Epstein finds over and over again, and he doesn't use the word calling, but it's replete throughout that book, is you need to leave that aside. And as Oz writes, one of his chapters is, uh, what is that to you? Is that it, it does need to be about your story. Mm-hmm. And whether that, whether those changes happen at 40, 50, or 60, at least you should also be able to analyze, are there positive or negative influences encouraging me or discouraging me from pursuing that? Are these things from God or are they from something else? Pete, that's actually a great segue to our next question, which comes from Sam Van Leer, who asked, would either of the speakers like to address the dilemma and challenge of hearing in a discerning way when one senses a calling? Oz, why don't you take the first crack at that? Well, think biblically, first of all. Mm. Nothing higher than words in the scripture. The world's created by words. We're called by words. And so the heart saved Judaism. Hear, O Israel. Listen up, O Israel. So hearing is the heart of it. And that begins as we read the scriptures, the written word, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So, yes, hearing is absolutely critical. But when we hear something that is unusual, often it needs a check. Is what I'm thinking is right biblical? Uh, Is it ego? Is it whatever it might be? You can see all sorts of possibilities there. And that's where I think we need our spouses. We need our Christian friends. We need people who will truly hold us accountable So we can go to them at times when we're uncertain. We think we've heard, and we may have eaten something for lunch, (laughs) and so on. In other words, hearing is the heart of it, but we've got to develop that hearing from the Word, through the Spirit, through our friends, through circumstances, and not read into tea leaves. That's great. So our next question comes from Tom McDevitt, who asks, how would you consider one's calling in relation to the future of America, restoring the culture, and demonstrating an enlightened sense of patriotism? Well, there's two reasons for followers of Jesus to be responsible for America. One is calling. So we are salt and light wherever we are, and we happen to be, I'm not American, but we're in America. And those of you who are American, Calling should make you deeply engaged. But also, as Americans, Mm. you're part of a republic 
we the people, all are responsible for all. That's part of the whole covenantal system. Every American is responsible for every government you have. So Americans should be in the thick of engagement, not only in politics, but throughout the whole of life, family life, artistic life, cultural life, including politics. Now we've got to get to the place politics is truly downstream. First thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. But all that said, it is part of citizenship in America. And shame on Christians if we're not responsible. You can see certain elections, particularly more than 15 years ago, where evangelicals in droves never even voted. Hmm. And that's appalling. We are, as citizens, responsible and should be engaged. I just add that, as we all know from the Declaration of Independence, that phrase that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And sometimes I, I think that we've forgotten really what, how happiness was really defined by the founders. It was defined classically, essentially, as they would not use this term specifically, but essentially the freedom to pursue your calling, to pursue the, the gifts, talents, and abilities that, that you have. And I think if we understand calling as a way into understanding another similar term seen more corporately, which is flourishing, okay. that our politics really should be connecting and creating environments by which people can pursue their calling. Now, as Oz rightly said, this is the importance of liberty. <laughs> and one of the books that really helped me understand that, to take that step from calling broadly into more politics is Andy Crouch's book, The Strong and the Weak. I use that a lot in some of my discussions around what does Christian calling to politics look like? And Andy's not even talking about calling in that sense, but he certainly outlines uh, an environment that Christians should be about pursuing, which is creating environments by which there can be flourishing. So as we wrap up, Oz and Pete, I'd love to get a final word from both of you. So Pete, let's start with you. I wanted to salute one of the virtues that sometimes we don't talk about when it comes to calling, and that's courage. My mind goes back to that walk that I had from 38th and 8th to Penn Station with that uh, white pa uh, plastic garbage bag. And I remember asking myself and not really asking God, why is, why is this happening to me? And I realized fairly soon after that, I was asking that question rhetorically. The, the beginning of the quest for calling begins with asking that very same question, but asking it seriously, really asking God, why is this happening? And it takes courage because it's very easy to ask that question rhetorically and just distance yourself from what is God really doing in this moment? And so I would just encourage all here that if you're asking that question of yourself, ask it intentionally and seriously and follow the answers as they come. Sheree, one thing I love about calling, it goes from the very personal to the very public. And let me just finish with a public thought. One way to express the challenge of our time to faith is that we are facing how do we respond to the loss of Christian consensus 
and the dominance in Western, certainly American culture. Now the Jews faced that when you had the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and AD 133. Christians faced that when Rome fell in 410 and 475. And basically you had the same challenge in each situation, fight, flight, or faithfulness in a fresh way. You know, Qumran was flight, and there are people who want to fly to Christian communities that withdraw today. Others want to fight the culture warriors and the zealots in the time of Jesus and so on. But the Jews discovered the synagogues and the rabbis were faithfulness in a fresh way. Augustine's the city of God in the city of man was that for his generation. That's what we need to discover and callings are part of it. Incredible moment for America, incredible moment for humanity. And if everyone, everyone, and everything enters and engages their calling, there can be a significant change. And this is all part of our daily prayer, Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Oz, Pete, thank you for your wisdom, candor, and insight. Great to have you with us. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's programs and show notes are available at ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversations.